Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, January 13th, 2013. My name is Leah, and I'm your moderator. This morning's topic is Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism. The big book teaches us we have a twofold illness, the allergy of the body and the obsession of the mind. The allergy of the body is a bad problem. However, the big book makes it clear that we have a problem worse than that. The big book says our main problem centers in our mind rather than in our body. Here to speak about Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, is Ruth, a recovered compulsive overeater from St. Louis, Illinois. Ruth is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, intensively working with other compulsive overeaters and carrying the message that, indeed, there is a solution. And it is now my pleasure to welcome Ruth. Good morning, Ruth. Okay, Leah, can you hear me now? Indeed. Good. Okay, well, first I want to apologize for the tech problem that got us started a few minutes late, but the tech masters out there have gotten it taken care of, so we're ready to go. I'm Ruth, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And uh, so today we're going to talk about more about alcoholism. Uh, but to say I would like to just get just a real brief to get us up to this chapter so we know where we're at. Well, first, um, I want to just, in case you'll figure this out if, you, if I didn't, didn't tell you, that I am a big book thumper. And any time the OA literature is at variance with the big book, I always go with what the big book says. So if any of you are out there fairly new and you go, well, that's not what the OA literature says, that's correct. That's by intent, and I don't apologize for that. So we're really going to cover the program the way the big book tells us to work it because these were 100 recovered alcoholics who had already done it and then gave it directions to do the, exactly what they did to get exactly what they got. So that's why this book is written in past tense and uh, OA literature is written in present tense because we're still trying in our lower OA literature, talking about being recovered, trying to get it to happen. Okay, so the big book, as I was trained by uh, Joe and Charlie, and I honor both of them, they're both now dead, um, came to understand in 1986 from attending a workshop with them and then again in 1987. And uh, I came in program in 1982 and got abstinent in 1986, and I've been abstinent ever since, so that's not a coincidence. It followed after going to their workshop and leaving that workshop, realizing that weekend retreat, that somehow all I was doing before then uh, wasn't sufficient, and what they knew as recovered alcoholics, as they had studied the book, um, was the way to do it. So you also hear a lot of Joe and Charlie. Nothing, almost nothing I say is original. It's all copied from them and others, and I take no apology. I simply, when I hear something, I'll put it in. So um, so anyway, we look at what Joe and Charlie said, and they said that the big book first is a textbook. That means you cannot open up page 58 and start reading more about, you know, you can start reading Rarely You've Seen a Person Fail because that means you're taking a book of math and you're opening it up in the middle and starting to study algebra and you've not even understood addition and subtraction, and it won't work. So we have to go in the order in which the book is written, starting from the beginning to the end, that's a textbook. Each one, each thing will build on whatever previously has been said. So uh, with that in mind, that's how we have to approach it. And they also said the book answers three key questions. Um, and these three key, these three key questions is an ancient problem-solving method, method. We've been doing it for millennium. And the first is, what is the problem? If we don't know what our problem is, um, we're not going to take step one sufficiently. 
And if we don't have the problem, we don't need to be here. We can leave. So what is the problem? And the problem is step one. The problem is powerlessness. Um, if we are not powerless around certain foods, and I would say specifically key food ingredients in the food, um, then we don't have a problem. But if we are powerless around that, those foods, then um, the key ingredient that's common in foods I don't eat. I don't, I've been abstinent uh, from sugar artificial sweeteners for, you know, 26 years, and I don't have to try all the latest products to add it to my list. I just simply don't eat anything that has any form of sugar artificial sweeteners in it, for example. It's not necessary. I don't eat junk food. I don't need to try the latest ingredients and say, ah, I think I'll need to add that one also. I simply don't eat certain foods that are like, you know, these high unhealthy fats, high salts. I don't put them in my body, and then I have no cravings. Uh, so what is the problem? And uh, brilliantly said by Dr. Silkworth in Doctor's Opinion tells us exactly what the problem is. And the problem is twofold, a physical ideal and a craving and a mental obsession. Those two things is what is our problem. So it's in the body and it's in the mind. And I did a talk on Thanksgiving Day, which I really covered a lot more about it, and I'm sure you could listen to that. Uh, but we have these two problems, the body and the mind. Uh, we are going to be recovered from this seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, and they're talking about the mind and the body as Dr. Silkworth defined it. Um, then if we know what our problem is, then we want to know what is the solution. If the problem is powerlessness, then the solution is power. It has to be. Because lack of power, that was our dilemma, and we have to find a way to have power. Well, this power has to be a power greater than ourselves. It cannot be anything that we can do. Um, and so we want to know what that is, and that's step two. So step one tells us what is our problem, powerlessness. And step two tells us what is the solution, which is power. And then the third question this book will answer is, well, how do you get the power? And steps three through 12 will tell you exactly what you'll need to do. And if you do exactly what those steps do, tell you to do, according to the big book, you will have the power, and uh, you will have a life in which... You do not not only not eat compulsively, but you don't think to eat compulsively. And that's what it would mean to be recovered because you now no longer have the problem. You do not have the physical allergy and the craving because you don't put, the, you don't put your foods in you that, you that you're addicted to. And you don't have the thought to do the behavior because the mental obsession is gone directly from doing the steps. So in step one, I ha it says, in doctor's opinion, entire abstinence. That's the only thing that Dr. Silkworth has to suggest. He has no other options. There's no door number one, number two, or three. The only option is entire abstinence. The only way we can uh, not have a physical aller allergic reaction, which is an abnormal reaction to certain foods that cause us to crave them, is to not put them in our bodies. We have no option other than that. So any and every form of it has to not be put in our bodies. Once we do that and the allergy is now not manifesting, there's no craving, well, we have to deal with the mental obsession. That's the part of the disease, which is the mind, the way the mind thinks about the food. And my mind always was about getting it or not getting it. If I was wanting to have it, I had to have it. And then when I got fat, I didn't like that, and I wanted to lose weight. And we call them food plans. A lot of people, the lay person would call it a diet, and I did that to lose that weight. 
So it was about eating or not eating certain foods. But I was never free from the thought. The thought was always there of some way to do it or not do it. And to get rid of that mental obsession, we have to do these steps. We have to know what the solution is, which is we have to find a power greater than ourselves to restore us to sanity. Power greater than ourselves. It cannot be our, our own power because we're powerless. Well, so as, as Joe and Charlie taught, uh, Dr. Silkworth tells me what is the problem. And then always, always in this book, every time there's a very major idea, Bill will always follow it up with an illustration an example, something to make the point. So if you didn't get it the first time, you'll get it right after that. You'll follow immediately with what is an example of it. So Bill gives you Dr. Silkworth's story, his ideas, but then it's immediately followed by his own story that, tell, that gives it in a, a story, a, an example, illustration through his life that ex perfectly explains what the problem is. Then the next thing, what is the solution? Well, it's going to be in the chapter called there is a solution. In fact, it's going to be on a page that says in ital italics, there is a solution. So it's not complicated. You know, the big book's not trying to hide it from us, although we claim we don't know what it is. And in that, if you go to page 25, you will be told what is the solution. And then you flip the page, and sure enough, on page 26, 27, you're immediately given the example. And that's Roland Hazard uh, talking with Dr. Carl Jung. And there again, it's telling you the same thing. What is the solution? Okay. Well, then of course we go on, and you know we we talk of we can go on to many examples from the subsequent steps. But well, today we're going to be concentrating on step two. Now I know there's some people out there that are listening and believe this chapter more about alcoholism is about step one, and I understand where you're coming from because it's really focusing on the mental obsession, and isn't that a part of what the problem is? And that makes sense. So. I'm fine with people that say that. Um, my teaching was, though, from Joe and Charlie, that the book would ne was never written where you would do step one work, do step two work, go back and do step one, and then go to step two again. They always uh, believed that each chapter built on the previous one, and there was no back to a previous step. So honoring them, and I understand where they come from, that this is what is the solution. So from their point of view, and I'm fine with those that believe it's step one work, and that's fine, and we're, not, we're really not in any way going to fight or disagree. It's fine. Both of our ways are right. Both of our ways are wrong. Both of our ways are our ways. And that's the great thing. Uh, but from their view, um, that first you know what your problem is from Dr. Silkworth and, Do and Bill's story, and then you know what the solution is. First you're told what is the solution in the chapter called There is a Solution. And the next two chapters will cover the two key components of step two that people balk on and can't really take the step with enough depth that it works. And as you look at the, the steps, came to believe that power greater ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, the first thing they're going to cover is what is insanity because you're going to have to accept you're insane in order to be willing to be sane. Um, this part of the step won't be taken unless you can swallow this very uh, very painful truth that you're crazy. You may be saying it any other way, but as far as food, you're crazy. Or you wouldn't be on the line. Or you maybe, you know, that's why you're here to find out. Then you also have the second part of step two that will be difficult for you to take, which is a power grade in ourselves. So I have to know what the power grade in myself means, and the next chapter, Weight Gnostics, covers that piece of step two. 
So from their perspective, these two chapters are simply addressing the two key components of step two that you'll have to take with enough depth that you can now take step two. But again, I'm fine with those that believe that this is part of the mental obsession which describes the problem. Both answers, I think, are right. So anyway, as we get to more about alcoholism, we're going to focus on the mental obsession. And again, you can cover the physical allergy in the talk I gave on Thanksgiving Day. So on this chapter, it starts right off. I love these, this page 30. This is so packed full of information that we could spend the whole rest hour just dealing with this page um, because it really uh, sums up what's going on in our mind, <laughs> which, again, is crazy. We're insane. Uh, but Bill does not lead into the very first words of this chapter saying, guess what, guys, we're crazy, we're insane. He doesn't really do that. He kind of he moves this in there, and he's going to take us from word to word where he builds up and examples that we, at the end of this chapter, if we have honesty, which is the key, because I didn't have any when I came in really about my food, um, but build in and by the end of this chapter, conclusively we can say, yes, we are insane around food. We might be insane in other areas, but clearly we're insane around food. And yes, we must be restored to sanity. We must buy into that piece of step two. This has to be or we really won't take step two. If we don't believe we're insane, then why do we really have, do we really need the solution? Oh no, we got sanity around food. We just got a little problem. Um, we really won't take step two. We, in fact, we really haven't taken step one. So, um, so what he says that, that um, our careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could, in our case, eat like other people. The idea that somehow someday he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of a very abnormal drinker. So first we see the word obsession, obsession. And again, remember, Dr. Silkworth calls it a mental obsession. So he's going to use a word that ties us in to what Dr. Silkworth described about our problem. Obsession, he says. <clears throat> and this obsession is that somehow someday we will control and, it, and enjoy our eating because now we don't enjoy it anymore. But we're going to be able to control it and enjoy it. And it's the great obsession of all of us. Why do we have a mental obsession? Because a key root, it's, it's, it's like there. It's like they're under the ground, and above the ground is all this activity and thoughts we work on to find ways to control our eating. But under the ground, under the ground is this fundamental belief that somehow, someday, we can do something that will get what we want. We want to be able to continue to eat our foods not have the negative consequences as we perceive them. We will even be able to enjoy. Well, enjoy, let's say we want the original high. We want to go back to the way it was at the very beginning when it wasn't causing us much problems in comparison to the rest of the world. Very minor. We, any, unless you were very schooled in uh, the progression of our disease, most people wouldn't even notice. You know, eat a little more, but maybe didn't even gain any weight about it. You know, life was still good. You got a real kick, a real high off the food, or you wouldn't keep doing what we've done. And so at this point, um, that's what was going on. But we want to get back there somehow. And we, to get back there, we have to control. We have to control. God's nowhere in the equation here. We have to control because we are out of control. So the obsession is, that's a key component of this obsession, doesn't it say that? The ability to control. 
the, the somehow we will do it. We are the key. God's nowhere. We are not able to do it. And as we continually increase in the progression of our disease, we're even less able to control. And this is the, this is the irony of it all. As we're less able to control, we try to control more and have an obsession believing we can. So as it gets worse, we try to take efforts that actually makes it worse. Um, instead of what a normal person would say is, oh, I'm doing that and I get worse when I do it. I just won't do it anymore. And they stop, but not us. As it gets more and more out of control, the more we try to control it, which is then what does that say? It says the persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. So this illusion. So he says in one sentence, obsession. We've been looking at the word obsession. We studied it in Dr. Silkworth at depth. Now he calls it the obsession an illusion. He's now used a different word. So what is an illusion? If you think of the term optical illusion, for example, and you look at two glasses and they're half full, okay, and one glass is half full of water and it's a stubby short glass, and then the next one right next to it is a tall, much slender glass, and it's also half full, and there are equal amounts of water in those two glasses. And we look at those two glasses, and what we do by our eyes, looking at what we see, believe that there's more water in the short, stubbier glass than there is in the taller, longer glass. Well, but they're both the same. So what we're looking at is something that does exist, but our perception of what we're looking at is false. So there is an, uh, an obsession that we have, and that obsession is that we can control our eating, and we obsess about how we can control it, what we can do. It could be when we look at all the efforts, if it's going to group therapy, if it's going to just OA and trying to find using it as a diet plan or using it as group therapy if we want to get free group therapy, uh, whatever we do to do that, um, the book that we read, the uh, persons we talk to, but that, uh, that obsession that we're going to find a way, find a way, it's part of our obsession. The key, of course, the obsession where we just obsessively think about the food. I've got to have it, got to have it, can't have it. But we also have, it expands beyond that core to these other layers of how we're going to have it, how we're not going to not, not have it. It's still an obsession. The whole part of this obsession, it comes in many layers and many nuances. So we have our obsession. But the illusion that is that we look at something and we think we see something that we don't see, like the, gla the two glasses of water. We believe we see something, and then we believe what isn't there. And that is astonishing. And, it'll, and then we'll pursue that into the gates of insanity or death. And that's what this chapter is talking about. We will pursue this to insanity. Looking at something that's not there, seeing it in a different way than it really is, that part of seeing something that it is. So then the next paragraph, yes. Step one right here. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. So it tells us this is the first step. Then the next sentence says, the delusion that we are like other people presently maybe has to be smashed. So now he's using another word, delusion. So he's building from the words obsession, illusion. Now he's saying delusion. And what is delusion? I mean, why did he switch the words from illusion to delusion? He will never use the word illusion now anymore. He's now going to use the word delusion from this point until he gets to the next word. And the word delusion is um, delusions of grandeur. I'll give you an example. So 
if I really believe something that I'm just the greatest thing on the face of the earth, that I mean really a grandeur, that's me. Well, now I'm not looking at two objects thinking that they are of different amounts of water. I'm, I'm looking at something that doesn't even exist. I mean, I'm somebody that's eating table scraps out of my neighbor's trash can and getting caught. Uh, that's, that's, no, there's no, uh, that, that is a delusion of grandeur that I somehow could control it, that somehow it's going to be different. Now he takes us to the next level where we're believing that we see, uh, we see glasses of water and there's no glasses of water even there. We believe we see that which doesn't even exist. We've gotten so far in our disease that we can't even, we're, we're, we're believing things that do not exist. And when people think of delusion, a common term people have heard is schizophrenia. And what does that mean? You're seeing people that aren't there. You're hearing voices that aren't there. Um, that's it. You're not, you're, you believe something that doesn't even exist. So this is more than illusion. Illusion is there is something and you see it incorrectly. Now he's saying, oh, no, it's even more than that. It's believing something, uh, thinking you see something that doesn't, that doesn't even exist there. So that's more. So we see, oh, okay. So this delusion has to be smashed. The delusion that we, what is the delusion he is talking about? Well, he already mentioned in the previous paragraph. The delusion is that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking. That's a delusion. That's a false belief. And if you hold on to this belief in any way, you have not, um, you're not going to be able to successfully work these steps. Because what will happen is you will, ha you will come back and eat compulsively again because you believe you control so you're going to attempt to control and we know that anytime one attempts to control something it is out of their control where they never attempt to control something that's not a problem and I've joked about well I've never attempted to control the amount of Brussels sprouts I eat never have never have it's never entered my mind I eat them maybe three or four times a year never ever in my life have I overeaten them never have I thought of overeating them never has there been any mental obsession about Brussels sprouts in my mind so that's not a food that's a problem. That's not part of one of my binge foods ingredients. It doesn't have my key sugar uh, artificial sweeteners. It's not, it's not, I guess you could deep fry them, but it's not got high fats. It's got no salt on them. I don't put any on. In fact, I do quite well with vegetables, eating them in a healthy form. I don't binge on any of them. So, uh, so then the delusion is here. So we have to see, okay, why is he getting us worked up from this uh, word of uh, obsession to illusion to delusion? And the reason he is is because he's going to give us the next word. Um, he's, giving, he's getting us to the point where we're going to say the word insanity. Insanity. And it's going to come up and he's going to specifically, he talks about the first example of the man of, of you know, dry, a drive for 25 years. And he goes on and states there in, that in that particular story, he, he talks about that, and he kind of lets you know that this delusion, that this guy, after 25 years drive, can drink again. That's a delusion. That's a false belief. That's like seeing a, a person that doesn't exist. That's like hearing a voice that isn't there. That's where this man was. Because he failed to enlarge his spiritual life, he really wasn't able um, that a long period of sobriety and self-discipline qualify him to drink again. That's a delusion. He didn't ever go into spirituality. It doesn't say at all this man ever had any spirituality at all. And so here's a man that had a lurking notion that someday he would be immune to alcohol. Well, that's, again, a person that had a delusion. 
Uh, and then when he goes into the next example of Jim, he actually starts using the word insane, insanity. Um, and then we're going, oh, okay, now it's starting to build up. Now we're going to see, start hearing other words. And this isn't, uh, this isn't exactly what I want to hear here because I don't want to ever hear the thought that I, you know, that I Again, thank you for your patience. We have been hey, here. My you're, you are yes. unmuted now, Ruth. Thank you, Melody. I mean, <laughs> what tech wizards out there? She's working overtime. Pay her extra, except she, we don't get paid. Okay, I'm sorry again about the tech problems. I wish it wasn't that way, but there's nothing I can do about it. So we move on. Okay, so the part I was talking about, I was talking about insanity, where he continues in this chapter to build to the word of insanity, because that's the key. We have to accept that we're insane or we are not willing to be returned to sanity to take step two adequately. So uh, it's important that he builds and builds on each of these stories to let us know the state of the mind that's somehow different than the normal person. But it's more than being different. It's insane. Um, he talks about uh, talking about if you go to the bottom of 31, well, why don't you step over to the nearest bar room? Why don't you go to the nearest buffet? and try some controlled eating. You know, go there. Try some controlled eating. See if that will work for you. Try to eat a little and then stop abruptly. Who is ever, you know, trying to stop with it before you clean your plate would just drive me crazy. The children in China will die, I thought. Well, they didn't even know that I was having this dialogue, so I continued to eat more. Um, and, they, and they talk about later the part, of, well, go ahead and try for a year. And we don't think any of you can do it. I mean, if our hats are off to you if you can pull this off, but why don't you go off for a year and see if you can do this, this controlled uh, drinking and our call eating, and then if you can do that, everything's great. Okay. Um, so what's happened is that um, he's challenging us, and that's good because we wanna, we're arrogant. Um, but the key is once we start, we have no control, whatever. Um, I, I heard recently, I was listening to a tape by Marty Mann, who was the original female to get permanent sobriety in, in uh, AA, and her stories, Women Suffer Too, in the book. And she made an interesting point. She said, you know, it's really not so much about stopping. Uh, for us, it's about the elusive chase to have moderation, that we're always trying to eat moderately again, and we're never going to pull that off. So we can say stop, stay stop. Here's the story. We, as we continue to get worse, so let's say instead of staying stopped for a year, maybe I can stay stopped for nine months, or maybe I get down to X number of months, and eventually I get down to X number of weeks. But in my mind, I say, well, I did stop for a while, so thus I can still do it again, not understanding the progression is taking me farther and farther until one day I will be the little black dot in the center of the circle where I'm not stopped at all ever. So my mind will lie about that, and uh, we can go off and try for a year to do it, but we're really chasing the ability to control or drink it in moderation or eat in moderation so that then we don't have the negative consequence. We won't gain weight, for example, or we can now lose weight from what we're doing. Those are common things. So that not being able to eat in moderation probably is even a quicker test. And so what she had a test, and it was called the Marty Mad Challenge, and anybody very, very early at the very beginning days of AA, because she came in program in 39, got uh, sober in 40, and then died in 1980. So what about her and her challenge? And this is what she would say to people. 
you think you can do this. Well, what I want you to do is I want you to go out and have two drinks every day for the next 30 days. You cannot have less and you can't have more. And if you really don't think you're one of us, you'll be able to do that. But you won't be able to do that if you're one of us. You will not be able to do that for 30 consecutive days, drink in moderation. I think the same thing is true, and I've actually done that with people in program. So whatever is your particular binge food, I don't care. Let's just say a candy bar. We'll just use that example. It could be anything now. And I, would, I used to say two candy bars. Today they're so big, just take one of them. So um, I want you to eat a candy bar every day for the next 30 days. I don't want you to eat less than one. I don't want you to eat more than one. I want you to eat one. And I dare you to do it. I dare you to do it. Because if you're not one of us, you'll have no problem. But if you're one of us, you will not be able to do 30 consecutive days of moderation of your foods, your binge foods, and not struggle with that. You can't do moderation. You can't get back to the original state of when you were eating a little more, but it still could be pretty close to moderation. You're not going to be able to pull it off. And so that then is the challenge. And so in 30 books a, a year, but her challenge took only 30 days, and it did work. So um, we look at the man again. We look at the man that went and decided that, you know, he had a lot of problems. He wasn't ever going to be able to um, drink again, and so he did. He stopped bone dry, never drank for, for 25 years. And um, he had all this self-discipline. He had this long period of sobriety, and so now he could drink again. Um, so this is an example, I think, according to what the big book says here, that this is talking about the physical allergy primarily. Uh, there's a false belief in there, but the body, no matter how long it takes, will come back and have an allergic reaction, and you will have a craving. That once you put that first bite in your, in your body, then what happens is the craving immediately begins. And it doesn't matter how long it takes, even 25 years of abstinence. Say you never eat compulsive for 25 years. You take your one bite, if you're one of us, you're off and going again. If you don't find a relationship with God to take over, which is what step two is about, you will simply just have a period of being dry, but you won't be able to ever be able to stay that case. So, um, so it says here, talks on page 30, it's a powerful lesson. If we've remained sober for a very long stretch, then you, we think we can, uh, if we are absent for a long stretch, then we can now somehow you know, eat normally again. Actually, we never ate normally. That's a lie. What we called normal eating before was never normal. It was the early stages of the addiction, and there's nothing normal about it. Um, so there must be no reservation of any kind, no lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to this, these binge foods. It doesn't exist. So we can do whatever we want, but it's not, it's not going to happen. And... Um, then, so we, we talk about that, and if we look back on our eating, we realize we were real alcoholics long before we thought we were, and we had lost our power long before we realized it. So then it says on page 35, now we talked about this whole process of this. It says, what sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? What, what is this? So we're now going to look at the mental state. We will describe the sentence, the last sentence of the, sentence, the paragraph above. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously this is the crux of the problem. 
We have twofold disease, a physical allergy and a craving and a mental obsession. That sentence tells us the main part of our problem is the mental obsession. So the rest of this chapter is going to focus exclusively on this mental state. He gave you some words to lead in, obsession, illusion, delusion. And now he's going to focus on that. And he's going to now take the words of delusion, and he's now going to take the first example, and he's going to tell you how this man was insane. And he's going to tell you the jaywalker and how the jaywalker was insane. And he's going to tell you about Fred and how Fred's thoughts were insane because the crux of our problem is between our ears. So this man, Jim, you know all is well, but he doesn't enlarge his spiritual lives, and he's drunk. And we finally get the famous story as he goes to this place out in the countryside. So this paragraph on page 36, this first paragraph, has got some interesting part in here. And we don't necessarily re we read it, but we somehow miss a piece. You know, he's decided he's going to take a drive into the country. He's going to see one of his prospects for a car. On the way, he felt hungry, so he stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. What does that sentence tell you? Why is he stopping at a place where there's a bar? Well, not only is he stopped at a place where there's a bar, he's had no intention of drinking, but not only has he stopped there, he's done this many times. Many times he's, he's gone there to see if he could find a prospect. So this man is doing what I call suds, seemingly unimportant decisions. He is not thinking of, eating, of drinking. Okay, okay. okay. Guys, give me, give me patience here. Anyway... Anyway, we got Jim. I feel like i got to rush for time here. Anyway, Jim is at this place, and what we have is he decides to go to a place where there's a bar, and he's been doing this regularly, and he has no intention of drinking. I'm saying it's the example of you going into that, your favorite place to gas up your car, and in that favorite place that you gas up your car, attached to it is your favorite fast food restaurant. Now, you go there regularly. You go there regularly. You always go to gas up your car at that place. You don't think of eating compulsively. In fact, you've done it many times without ever entering the thought to, to do that. And every time you gas up your car, oh, you're diligent to make sure you don't do anything appropriate, but you always seem to have to go to the bathroom that's inside the fast food restaurant with all the smells just pouring into your nose. So you're doing this regularly. You don't see there's a problem in that. You think that just is fine by you. So just like this guy, you have failed to enlarge your spiritual life because you're doing something stupid or we would say insane. Why would you put yourself repeatedly in close proximity to that which you cannot control? But you think you can control because you can keep doing it and you're not actually acting out and you're not even thinking of eating compulsively. But you know what's thinking of eating compulsively? That unconscious part of our disease. For some part of our disease is on the conscious level and another piece of our disease is on the unconscious level. And we must do things that does not escalate the unconscious part of our disease which will pop out into the conscious part and at that point we eat compulsively. So if we do actions which we put ourselves in, in high-risk situations where we eventually will cave in, we have set ourselves up to fail. And that's what we do. And we are blindsided by much of it because we're not consciously thinking of eating compulsively. But what happened with Jim, he always put himself at a bar to eat a meal. He could have stopped at other places to eat a meal, but he always had to stop at the bar to get his food. And his justification for his behavior was so he could get a prospect there because he had been there and he had met people. 
Yes, but you're watching people drink in front of you, and you cannot handle that. You have not enlarged upon your spiritual life. You have no relationship with God in order to have the disease diminishing. It's increasing, and you're blindsided by what you're doing deliberately, though unconsciously, to get yourself to eventually drink. And so we do it too. If we stop at that gas station and attached to it is our favorite fast food restaurant and we always have to go in that restaurant and, and go ahead and go to the bathroom every time we gas up, we have set ourselves in motion for what obviously will occur. If we get close to God, closer to God, we will be working with a sponsor to go, duh, don't go there. There are plenty of people, places to put your gas in your car. Do not go to that place. Will tell us what we're doing, and we, if we're really trying, you know, to do what we need to do and listen to this wisdom, yes, we will follow those directions and stop going there. Or we'll rebel and say we can handle it, which already, what do we say if we can handle it? We already are saying, screaming, screaming with a magnaphone, we can control it, we can do it, we don't need to take those level of precautions. We're fine. We can get away with it. Anytime we do an action, have a belief that says, I can get away with it, you already are standing in deep doo-doo and, and you don't even know it. So the, the part I like about this story, and I know it doesn't get as much attention about the, you know, the whiskey and the milk, I want to go earlier in the progression of the disease. And earlier is actually going to a place that he should never have been going, repeatedly going, and thus having the false belief, the insane thought that he could do what he could not do. Later, we'll have another more direct insane thought, which is I can put whiskey in the mouth. I mean the mouth. I can put whiskey in the, in the, in the milk. And so then, um, then at that point, it's too late. If you want to stop the little snowball at the top of the hill, or do you want to try to stop an avalanche at the bottom hill that's falling on you? You probably are not going to stop the avalanche, but you can pick up the snowball and have it not roll down the hill and be an avalanche. So, um, so there's the key. We have to look at those things we do that precede the thought to eat compulsively. We need to know what those actions and those thoughts are and have and have that stopped so that we don't move on. And the only way we can do that is moving closer to God that will give us, in, with that connection with God, we'll begin to get more astute, more aware, and we'll be attracted to and want to hang around those that are recovered that can give us those information so that we continue to move towards what God wants and we can intervene earlier. If we don't do that and try to go it alone or try to get a sponsor that eats compulsively like us so that we can both be binging buddies but we don't know it consciously, that's not going to work. We need to go around recovery. We need to go around people that are recovered. We need to get into strong meetings that are recovered because they will point out those things that are occurring on the unconscious level that we have no defense against. And the vast majority of our disease is on the unconscious level. And that's where in the insanity is and we have to go there also and uh, I can give you an example uh, I guess I was uh, at this point I was uh, abstinent not thinking of uh, eating compulsively I'm going to guess about two years uh, abstinent and I had a dream and in this dream um, I wake up and it's the middle of the night the, the room's completely dark and I've had a dream <clears throat> when I've eaten my favorite bench food and for a just seconds, I believe I've done it. And I am just devastated. I am crushed. How could this be? I've actually done it. I've eat, I can't believe it. And I'm just, my heart's palping, and I'm just beside myself. And then I go, oh, it's a dream. 
And what that was was a gift from God. And what this gift was, God said to me, the disease lives in you, and it lives in a place you will not be consciously aware of. And it will always be there. No matter how, how far along you are, no matter what you do, Ruth, the disease will always be there, and that's in your unconscious. And you cannot control your unconscious because you're unconscious to it. But it's there, and you must always stay close to me. If you stay close to me, it won't matter how that disease is in the unconscious. It can do whatever it wants, but I will be with you in all your thoughts. And if I'm with you in all your thoughts, the, the disease part in the unconscious can't manifest, for your thoughts are full of me. And so I learned from that dream that it doesn't matter how long it's been. The man of 25 years sober still went back and did it again. And I'll go back and do it again if I don't stay close to God. That doesn't allow the, un- the unconscious part of my disease to manifest. Um, so then we have the story uh, of Jim, and we can go on about this, but um, then, because uh, I know I'm with all the breaks, I'm getting late. So let's go on the Jay Walker, which happened to be my favorite story of all of these. Um, oh, wait, I just want to say one thing. Uh, page 37, um, where now he begins to use the word insanity. And we'll go to the first. He does it three times on this page. The first paragraph, whatever the precise definition of the word may, word may be, we call this plain insanity. So we know that trying to put whiskey in milk is insanity. I think also going to a place to get a meal when you're an alcoholic that has a bar in it is insanity. (laughs) That's not a good idea, you know, Uh, not with somebody that has no spiritual connection with God. And then he he says um, in the next paragraph, he says, but there was always a curious mental phenomenon that paralleled with our sound reasoning that and Evely ran some insanely trivial excuse. Again, insanely. So he used the word insanely um, for taking the first drink. Our sound reasoning failed to hold us in check. The insane idea worn out. So you see in these two paragraphs, he's now going to say insanity. He's going to be saying insane. This is more than just, uh, he uses the word obsession, illusion, delusion, but now he's going to label it for what it is. It's insanity. And then the jaywalker, which again, I love this story, and he talks, and again, I loved it because it's so, it, was, it was harder for me to deny what was going on because this guy was crazy. And, yeah, and the reality is, yeah, I was crazy. And so uh, as we talk about the guy who just kept running in front of cars, um, the last sentence of the first paragraph, such a man would be crazy, wouldn't he? Crazy. And then the next paragraph, in the, in the last part of that paragraph, however intellect we may have in other respects where alcohol has been involved, we've been strangely insane. So again, he's using the word insane. We've got five times the word insane in just these two pages. And with Fred, again, we'll say insane. So the key now, he doesn't use those other three words now. He's just going to use the word insane. And so okay, there's something really big here. This is really more than just um, that, uh, you know, that we can, we can somehow have a little problem with we have to take care of. A little problem we will take care of. But insanity we will not be able to take care of. Um, and on the story of Fred, when we get to Fred, um, the same thing here, that this idea that with knowledge, self-knowledge, as it says the jaywalking with Fred, that's going to be take care of it. But insanity can't be taken care of with knowledge. Um, what we know from the time this book was written, we go back into the 30s, and we have to sometimes put it in context. 
the idea of insanity, spending a whole chapter convincing people by these examples, knowing that that's who we are, that we're insane. Let's think about what was going on in the 1930s regarding mental health. Hmm. 1930s. At that point, the idea of a lobotomy hadn't even existed yet. The idea of the original shock treatments, electric shock treatments, where they simply just burned up a piece of your brain, didn't exist yet. I mean, a lobotomy, if you want to know what it is, is taking an ice pick, tick, sticking it inside of the, the far, front part of your brain, twisting it around a bunch of times and making mush up there. Um, in fact, that man won a, Nobel Peace, uh, Nobel, won a Nobel Prize for his great idea. Uh, I guess that was awarded to him a little too soon. So um, that's what people did. Uh, if they needed help, if they had what was considered insanity, at, you know, this came about in the 40s and into the 50s, Psychotropic meds were not even invented into 1955. So the idea of mental health was prior to lobotomies and frying your brain. Um, before that, this book was written, before the, even those now ideas we see were not appropriate, the only, help, the only thing you had if you were insane, nobody said, oh, you're crazy. Nobody would say that. That was huge because if you were insane, then the only option you had was two options, and you would be locked up in an insane asylum, or you would be death. That would be it. You would just die, or you would be locked up. And when we say locked up in an insane asylum, if you were to be, commit a crime and you would be sentenced to prison and you served your time, you would be let out. If you were put in an insane asylum, you didn't get out unless you escaped. There were no options. There was nowhere else to. There was nothing else they could do with you, and there was no other place you could go. So you would spend the rest of your life locked up with other crazy people, and you would just be. You know, they put some food food in your body, and they put some clothes on you, but they had no treatment. There was nothing. We didn't even have lobotomies yet. To say that a person was insane was like worse than you were guilty of a crime. At least, if you were guilty of a crime, you got out once you put your time in. But once you were insane, there was no solution, and thus you were doomed forever living there with your wet brain insane. So Bill's given us something that he has to spend a whole chapter to, to really talk to us about insanity because this was not like we think of the word use of sanity today. If we go back to the 1930s, it meant the only option you have if you're truly insane, the only option you have is to be locked up somewhere, and all they did was the most primitive needs of you, and you just sit somewhere in a corner and drooled, or said supposedly crazy things to other people in the room, and that's all you did. That was it. That was your whole rest of your life. You'd rather be dead probably than that. Um, that's all you had if you were insane, and you didn't get to get out either. You know, they just once you really got in there, and they said you're really, really crazy. You you were done. You know, you, some wealthy people would find some asylums and be there for a while, and maybe the family would take them out and say they could take care of them. But um, the options were pretty limited. Um, so Bill is really trying to t be aware of what he's trying to let you know of. And um, as far as a point of history, if we look back at the time this was written, again. Uh, again, we're going to talk uh, late 20s, early 30s, uh, a piece uh, a member found and was describing this, that there were really four types of insanity. They just gave four categories. Um, the first one was dementia. 
And dementia today, we think the most common type of dementia is Alzheimer's disease. And that was the first type of insanity. Well, from the perspective of the person looking, you know, at you and you didn't know who you were and whatever, you were insane. Today, obviously, we do not claim a person that has dementia is insane. We believe it's a physical illness, and we tried to do some intervention, which there's no cure for. But we don't believe it's a mental illness. Uh, but back then, that's what they thought. So if somebody had dementia, they were insane, and they needed to be locked up for the rest of their lives. Um, now, when Bill is using the term insane here, he is not referring to dementia. He, alcoholics, these 100 alcoholics were not, did not all, <laughs> they didn't have dementia. Um, they had a lot of brain damage from the drinking, but they, were, they did not have dementia. When they stopped drinking, much of their brain functioning got vastly better, or at least definitely better. So dementia is not what he's referring to when he's using the word insane. Um, the next definition would be hysteria. Um, and we would talk today about the general category of anybody with anxiety, uh, any of those type of mental illnesses where they were very anxious, restless, unable to be a very nervous wreck is what some people would call them. And so that hysteria type personality, not necessarily were all alcoholics that at all. I mean, many alcoholics, um, would just go and drink and go over in the corner and sleep. So it was not true of a hundred of these hundred. The all hundred of them were had hysteria, and he does not really refer to that in the book at all. Uh, alcohol is a depressant, and it tends to get one uh, not super high. I mean, there are illegal drugs that do that, but not necessarily alcohol. So he really didn't mean that either. The third one was melancholia was the term. And today we would call that depression, all the types of mood disorders where there are types of depression. Now that one you could say, well, there's a lot of alcoholics that were depressed, and Bill's own story was he suffered from depression. Today we would call it clinical depression until 1955 where it finally lifted him. And you can read passages, and as Bill sees it, just go in the index and read all the passages on depression and see how he dealt with it. And finally that did lift, staying close to God and the walking and the altering of the breaths and saying mantras or simple phrases and really working on moving his body and altering his thought process, which he did and eventually. It took him 20 years, but he did do that without any uh, therapy or drugs or any of that. Um, so there was people with depression, and he had depression, but it was not of all 100 either. There were some uh, alcoholics in this 100 that were not, were not that way. And the fourth and the last type of major classifications of insanity back in the 30s was called delusion. And key is that's the one he's referring to. All alcoholics suffer that type of insanity. Schizophrenia is a type of delusion. This is a type of insanity. It's called delusion also because all alcoholics suffer this delusion. So from that we know by tracing page 30 and then using these examples that followed that the type of insanity that we suffer as compulsive eaters is delusion the delusion that someday, somehow, we'll be able to control our eating. Um, and so we have to understand that's where we come from. That's what the mental obsession is talking about. It is the mental obsession right before the drink is put in the body or the bite is put in our mouth, right? That's insanity. We think about that in program. We talk about that in program. And clearly that is insanity. 
but I wanted today to talk about the pieces that precede even that moment in time. The guy that goes in the bar and decides to have his food there instead of going someplace where he won't be witnessing people drinking in front of him. We have other levels of insanity that always precede these seemingly unimportant decisions, studs, where we do things that are totally insane and don't even know they're insane because we're not yet thinking of putting the food in our body yet. And so we have to look at all that insanity also because it's the unconscious part of the disease, not the conscious part of the disease, but still the part, the roots of which the consciousness arise from below the ground and come out and we then begin to think of and then do the behavior. So we are insane. Our mental obsession is on many layers, unconscious, conscious, and many actions, um, and that we are this way. Normal people are not, are not the jaywalker. We are the jaywalker. We are the food jaywalker. And if we don't believe this, then we will not be thinking we're insane, and thus we will not say that we need to be restored to sanity, and we will not be able to take step two with the way it's meant to be taken. Uh, we have to have, and we can read page 25, 26, and 27, the only solution, and again, this is not OA material. OA material says disease is threefold. It says the recovery is threefold, blah, blah, blah. But that's not the big book. The big book says there's one and only one, one thing that can be done. The solution is Dr. Silkworth calls it a psychic change. And Dr. Carl Jung, when he's talking to Roland Hazard, and Bill gives his words, that what we have, if we go back and look at what is the solution, we know that we're insane, and the only way we cannot be insane is that if we read 25, we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have re revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, toward our fellows, and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. That is the solution. It's on the page that says in italics, there is a solution. And if we go and flip it over and read what Dr. Carl Young says on page 27, he then says, he's saying the same thing again. When Bill has a big idea, he says it, then he gives you the example. And what he says here, um, he's talking to Roland Hazard. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. Uh, bingo, we said the words again. To me, these occurrences are phenomenal. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes which were once the guiding forces of the allies of these men are suddenly cast to one side, and a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. That is our solution. It has to be a vital spiritual experience. Spiritual awakening. You will, we can go back. We don't have time to go into the difference between spiritual awakening and spiritual experience, but the bottom line, it has to be spiritual. It is bogus of me to think that our recovery, as we say in OA, that we're going to put our emotional and our physical equal to God. Nothing's equal to God. God is our solution. It's our only solution. And dare we say that our solution is threefold and that our physical and our emotion is equal to that? Nothing is equal to God. God has to come first. God is greater than anything else. And so it's just hypocrisy in my mind that you would even think that you could claim that something would be as important as God and would take equal standing. All those things will get better, but we have to have this solution. And in order to have this solution and embrace it, we have to understand we're insane. And so the chapter more about alcoholism is to let you know that you're insane so that you will want to be restored to sanity. 
If we understand it in its big picture, then yes, we will read these stories and we will see them not as just, well, look, yeah, they're kind of, yeah. No, they're us and we're them. And we have to really identify with that. If we can do that, then we've embraced this chapter and we want to be restored to sanity. And if we want to be restored to sanity and we can't do it because we know that's part of step one, then we have to have a power grant ourselves. And then the next chapter, we, we Agnostics, will help us get through that impasse that we will encounter that we won't be willing to embrace a power greater than ourselves. And then once we've done that, we know what the solution is, we know that we're insane, and we know what, what God needs to be for us, then yes, we can take step two the way the book has told, told us to take it. And then we can say, yes, we've taken step two. Assuming that we've taken step one, and with 100% absolute perfection, as it says on AAs 12 and 12, yes, with those words, then yes, clearly, we, we are uh, completely hopeless, utter despair. We are a person that has a physical you know, craving and a mental obsession. We understand that, and then we understand this. And then from that point, we're willing, Let tell me what i got to do. I know what my problem is. I know what my solution is. Tell me, tell me. And, of course, 3 through 12 tells us exactly what we need to do to have this solution manifest completely in our lives. But the, one of the very first pieces is to understand that we are crazy. Crazy as it was understood in the 30s. Not as it's understood in, the, in, in this year, 2013, but as it was understood back then. And back then it meant you were locked up in a corner drooling on yourself and you had no hope of ever being removed from that place, that insane asylum, because that's where your drinking had got you. And that's where our eating got us. And we can't believe that we would ever get to that place. But we are. We are crazy and in some ways, uh, people have said, can you just put me in a treatment center and lock me up? That'll take care of it. Well, you're just trying to control it. But we need to be locked up somewhere because uh, of the harm we do. And we don't want to admit that. But we are harm to ourselves and others, and we're not really fit to really be out here functioning because we're destroying any and everything around us. And we can take it with that level of certainty. Okay, well, thank. I want to thank everybody for allowing me to speak, and especially for all that we went through um, I don't know what happened today. That's a God thing, why it happened. But anyway, I'd like to now turn this over to Leah. Uh, and again, thank you for allowing me to speak. Thank you, Ruth. Thank you so much for your time and your energy. And thank you for your perseverance this morning with all the technical challenges that we had. We thank you for your patience with that. And everyone, thank you for your patience. We now open the floor for any questions that you might have Regarding Chapter 3, more about alcoholism, anything that Ruth spoke about or anything that you find in the text of the big book, please bring it on, star one to unmute. Hi, Leah. This is uh, Rita this morning from Connecticut. Hi, Rita. Hi, Rita. Hi. Uh, my son called me on the other phone, and, oh, what is the uh, share code for this uh, recorded meeting, please? We'll have that for you. When it's available. Later. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Okay. Thank, you. thank you. Thank you, Ruth. Anyone with a question regarding Chapter Hi, 3 or that alcoholism? Tippy, go ahead. Hi. I'm just wondering if God is the only solution, then if I improve my spirituality, get closer to God, and, you know, stop thinking about myself so much, thinking more of others, then. Wouldn't that automatically make make me feel normal around food? Be able to eat normally? Uh, well, if you said, you know, you want to improve your spirituality, 
actually, I find if I would, more... yeah, because if that is my problem, if that's my problem, that um, the core of all this is that I should be closer to God and I should, um, you know, not be so immersed in myself and think about others and quash my ego and and um, not not try and submit my will to His will. So if I'm improving in all these things, why? Why can't? I, why wouldn't it automatically be that I would start eating normally? Well, if when we go back to step one, uh, we understand that we are not able to eat normally. And I'll give you an example: of my neighbor. My neighbor is highly allergic to seafood, and if he puts seafood in his in his mouth, uh, twenty to thirty minutes later, he is dead. He, his, his allergic reaction to seafood is that his throat begins to swell shut and, and then he stops breathing. He suffocates. And that's true. He has to be rushed to a hospital. He has to be given an injection. And again, 20 minutes, uh, 30, but that's all. That's all he has. So he has an abnormal reaction to seafood. He has a physical allergy which causes his throat to swell shut and he suffocates. That's his story. That's his story. And uh, I can assure you that if he ever goes out to a restaurant, he's very clear, although they know him, that he is highly allergic to seafood. He tells the waiter, and they don't like dead people laying on the floor. It's bad for business. People don't like to show back up there. So they're very careful for him. Um, He has made 100% with absolute perfection. He's admitted that he's allergic to seafood, and he does not try to put seafood in his body again. He understands that's not an option. So when we take step one, we understand that there's certain foods that go in our body. We have an abnormal reaction to those foods. We never get an unnormal reaction. Once we've crossed the line into addiction, we can't cross back. So as so you I'll get be a better, born like better relationship this? with God, yeah, but understand, if you get a better relationship with God, you, you then continue to move closer to God and not to the insane thought that I'll get to eat normally eventually because that's insanity. My neighbor doesn't have the insane thought that, well, this time I'll have a bite. I'm sure I won't die today. No, that he doesn't have any insane thought that as I get closer to God, I'll now be able to eat normally because I'm feeling I'm closer to God. That's bogus. What you're doing is I'm going to set it up so I can control the situation. I'll go ahead and get a little closer to God so I get what I want because I want my food and I'm going to get it now. And I'm going to get it and I'll just put in my time to say what I need to say to God so I can still get what I want because, see, I can now somehow now be normal. And that's not at all what this big book's about. You have to accept that, like my neighbor, he can't eat seafood again. You have to accept that you can't eat certain foods again. Done. And as you begin to do these steps, you understand that, and you don't get closer to normal eating, you get closer to God because your normal eating never was normal. That's a lie. There is nothing about normal about what we do with food. To claim we want to become normal is lying to ourselves. We are never, ever going to go normal. We crossed from normal to abnormal a long time ago, years before we even knew it for almost all of us. For you to say... I'm going to get closer to God and then I can eat normal is a lie because you can never go to normal because you don't even want normal. You don't want normal eating. Normal eating is abstinence. Do you know normal eating is abstinence? People that are not addicts eat normal. And we, when we're abstinent, are eating normal. What we call normal is abnormal. It's the craziness with the food. You have to let that lie go because it's a pure lie. There's no truth in it. And to accept step one mm-hmm. is to accept the truth. 
Right. But was I born with this sort of addiction to these sorts of foods? Like, when do you get, when, does something change in my brain? I mean, I wasn't always like this, that I, you know, around food. Well, the key, when though, did it doesn't happen, really, that change? The key, it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter when you got it. It only matters that you know you have it. So some people, it is true. I've met people in program that said literally the, when they popped out, when they were born, the mother took them to the breast, and the first time they began to suck on their mother's breast to be fed the very first time in their whole life, the mother reported that they sucked harder and longer than any of her other children. And from day one, they seemed to be a compulsive eater. Um, and in the story of, of, of Bill Wilson and, and Dr. Bob, Bill Wilson acknowledged the very first time he drank alcohol, he was an alcoholic. The very first time alcohol touched his lips. He was, he was 22, you know, when it happened. Uh, so he was an alcoholic for the first time. There are others in program, uh, the more majority, in which it happened some point after birth. Um, my case, I crossed the line, now I know, about 15. I didn't know it for a long time, but at 15 is when I crossed the line. So many of us, it didn't happen from the very first time we put the food in our body. It happened at some point later than birth. And, yes, there are people in, um, in AA that said, no, they drank normally actually for a period of time, and then they crossed the line into alcoholism. So it, but you know what? It doesn't matter. We can sit around thinking about, well, I wonder when it happened. Let's see. Because what we're doing with that is another game. If I figure out with self-knowledge enough of what my problem is, Someday, somehow, I will be able to control my eating. You see the game you play by trying to figure out something that's irrelevant. If we spend yeah. our time trying to figure things out so that we can get what we want, we're still trying to play God and we've not taken step one again. And forget it, it's irrelevant. The point you have to do is you have to put the food down, any foods that you're addicted to, entire abstinence is said in doctor's opinion. You want clarity? Get the food out of, out of your brain because it goes, it metabolizes through your brain too. Get it out of your body, and you you you'll be amazing how you can think much clearer and saner when you don't have you're not operating under uh-huh. the influence. So don't, forget about the questions. Get abstinent first. Do the steps. The questions may or yeah. May I'm not just be barely answered. three weeks. Yeah, I'm just three okay. weeks into program. I'm still trying yeah. to get you know the things uh, behind so, it and all. Okay, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you, thank you. for the question. Anyone else? Star one time. This is Margaret. Margaret, your turn. Hi, Margaret. Oh, good morning, Ruth. Thank you so much. This is Margaret from New Jersey. I think the one thing that I just really heard was that just really helped me so much was how this thing will just always be lurking, which we I knew. You know, I mean, it's it wasn't uh, new information in that way, but the way you uh, put it out there about how it's always uh, lurking in the unconscious. And, you know, we have no control over the unconscious. That's That, I know, is for sure. But that just made it really, really clear to me. I don't know why, but I just wanted to thank you for that. And that, it, you know, I know it is only by getting closer to God that I, you know, that I can stay in recovery day by day. But that just uh, solidified it for me of ever trying to try and figure this out because I really know that the unconscious is extremely deep. Uh, I'm, I'm unable to get to it at most times. And that's where it's lurking. And unless uh, I am working this program with everything I have, the unconscious will 
drive me back, will tell me, oh, you can have this, or you can do this, or you can go there, or you can whatever, and I'll follow that. So uh, I just wanted to thank you so much, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Margaret. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Uh, this is Amy, and I wanted to ask, uh, first I wanted to thank you very much, Ruth. Um, I wanted to ask, what does thud mean? Uh, I know you said it twice, and I'm not sure what it is. Thank you. Um, It's seemingly unimportant decisions, seemingly unimportant decisions. So um, the example I gave, uh, you... Go to the you go to the place to fill up your car, and you always have to go to a place where there's your fast food restaurant attached to it. You won't go to all the other gas stations. Um, you have to go to that place only. Now you're not thinking of eating compulsively, are you? It, it never enters your mind. Actually, you don't see any correlation between that action and your disease working very well because you made a point to go to that gas station. In fact, when you go to that gas station, you always have to seem to go to the bathroom that's inside the restaurant, right? So that you go in and you physically look at, you smell it, you see the people eating, your favorite binge food, okay? And you somehow, you're not thinking of eating compulsively now. Just like uh, Jim goes to that bar where there's a sandwich, and, and he goes there often because he justifies it by the fact there must be a prospect that maybe we'll buy a car. So I go and justify going because I have to pee makes sense. i got to pee. i got to go there. Yet the reality is my unconscious part of me, of my disease, wants me in a high-risk situation that I can't handle because I'm not very far along in program. I mean, I'm doing this crap. And, uh, you know, I'm at step one or two, and I'm doing this crap. And, and, I, and I have no idea that my disease is operating and is getting its way. It's actually dominating me, and I have no clue that it's actually happening. Because I'm acting in a way that's completely stupid. It's insane thoughts. To think I should stop at a gas station, make it a point to stop at the gas station where my binge foods are going to be lurking and, I can, and I'm going to be in close proximity to it. And uh, I do this regularly, just like Jim. So that's a suds. A seemingly unimportant decision is to go to that gas station. It's seemingly unimportant because there's no conscious thought of eating compulsively. But there is uh, an unconscious with the conscious part of me thinking I need gas and I need to pee. I do need gas and I do need to pee, but I don't need to go there to do it. So the disease comes in in any activity I do and latches on to that activity in a way that it gets me taking that activity so that I get closer to my disease. Understand that the majority of our disease, um, once we get and we're abstinent and we're no longer eating compulsively, it just goes down to the unconscious. It never goes away. It becomes less known, but it's still lurking. And because we don't see or hear it, in effect, it's, it's, it, we're more blindsided if we do not have people that are recovered and in recovered meetings where we can pick up these truths and go, oh, my God, I didn't know. I've been doing something so stupid, I'm not going to do that again. Okay? So that's a suds. I had a sponsoree, I mentioned this in, uh, in Thanksgiving, but I had a sponsoree. I'd been to her house, so I knew, I, knew how to, I knew what was around her house. And she worked at a major department store that we all know in, in this country. And when she would get off work, which was in the evenings, um, she would get in her car, she would drive out the front, turn, and then go directly to her house. Literally, it was a direct path to her house. But between that uh, department store, 
uh, and er between there was probably every fast food restaurant in the country because this was this one of these belt lines where everything was out there in that part of the city. So she would drive by all of these fast food restaurants on the way home. Now, the highest time for her to binge was in the evening when she got off work and tired, and she always made a point to drive through past all these fast food restaurants on the way home. That's a suds. That's putting herself in a seemingly unimportant decision. It never occurred to her that she was she didn't think of eating compulsive when she started doing that. It didn't she just did it. She did it every day. That's how she always went home, hadn't she? For a long period of time. Now she's in program, now she's abstinent and she's seeing all these fast food restaurants and then the thought begins to enter her mind, Oh, I I need, I would like to stop. But you see that the problem was before she ever did the action the first time, because what she could have done is parked on the backside come out there, gone down that road, turned and gone the one block extra to her house. Would have added, I don't know how much time, minute maybe. It never occurred to her that a seemingly unimportant decision, which was to drive by her fast food restaurants on her way home in the evening at the prime time of when she would binge, was an act of the disease on the unconscious moving in, in a conscious action that would put her in a high-risk situation that would then cause her to think to do the behavior and then she does the behavior. That's a such. So those are a couple examples. And we need to have help from people around us that are recovered to point that out because they're not conscious, so thus we don't know we're doing them. They, we don't know that. But they have learned that because they are now abstinent and recovered, and they've learned from their own experiences and others and can point them out to us. And when they point them out to us, it's a no-brainer. But we don't see it. So we need help. And the key, of course, will always be getting ourselves closer and closer to God because once we get closer and closer to God, we begin to be aware of where do I get good, reliable information from people in programs that can let me see how, how insane I am. Not so I can control it and then now eventually eat compulsively, but rather see how hopelessly insane I am so that I become more humble and draw even closer to God because I see that I can never control the unconscious and so all this information gives me more and more information of how bad off I am and draws me more and more towards God, which is my only solution. Does that help? Well, thank you, Ruth, for that. Anyone else with questions? Star one to unmute. This is Rita. I have a question. Um, thank you for your share, first of all. I'm so Can you hear me? Yes, Rita, go ahead. Thank you for your share. I, I really enjoyed it this morning. I was just getting over pneumonia, so it really is helping me. And um, my question is, okay, once, I don't know, the book says you get recovered. Once you get recovered, do these thoughts ever come to your head anymore? Like, does it like ever occur to you like to go into a place and get something you shouldn't have, or does it just completely go away because you go to God? And thank you for letting me ask. Well, um, there's two questions: is recovered? What are you recovered from? Is a good question to ask. Um, and then the second is how often do these thoughts come in our mind? Well we are recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And they're talking about the physical algae and the craving and the mental obsession. So uh, if we do the steps the way they're meant to be done, we will recover, meaning we will not practice putting the food in our bodies so we have no physical algae and craving. And we will no longer have a mental obsession. We'll see from, we have recovered from that. 
So if we go and read the step 10 promises on the bottom of page 84 and 85. So at the time you get into step 10 work, this is the relationship you'll have with food. So this is going to answer your question. And this is the last paragraph on page 84. And it says, and we have ceased fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol, or in our case, food. For, this, by, for by this time, sanity will have returned. Ah, we get sanity. We had insanity in step two, but in step 10, we will have sanity back. Okay. And we cease fighting anything or anyone, even alcohol. For by this time, sanity will have returned. We will seldom be interested in liquor. If tempted, we recall from it as if from a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we'll find that this has happened automatically. We will see that our new attitude towards liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. We are not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. We feel as though we had been placed in a position of neutrality, safe and protected. We have not even sworn off. Instead, the problem has been removed. It does not exist for us. We are neither cocky nor are we afraid. That is our experience. That is how we react so long as we keep in fit spiritual condition. So the book is clear. By the time you're into step 10, you will have sanity. You, it, you will react in a, you will seldom be interested. Maybe it's possible very rarely you will have a thought. Um, maybe you won't have any thoughts. I can tell you. Uh, other than the dreams, I've had this one dream, I had another, except for that level on the unconscious, I haven't had a thought to eat uh, my binge foods approximately two years, and so I've been uh, absent 26 years, I'll say about 24 years, I haven't thought to do it. Um, so the book is very clear, it tells you. Now, once you have a sanity returned, maybe you can go into the uh, place and get gas up and go, and, and you won't even think of, eating compulsively. But you see, you will not go there in order to get yourself to get in close proximity because your disease is living well in your unconscious and you're acting out of that unconscious. You won't be in that dynamic. And then you possibly could do that, that behavior because you have sanity around food. But you won't, be dry, you won't find a way to get yourself into it, you see. So it's a non-issue then. There might be a situation comes up that you know, X number of years abstinent that you would do that you would never think of doing early on, um, but you don't have the unconscious motivation of the disease to get you to get back in the disease. It's just it actually came up and it was out of your control and you just dealt with something and, you know, it, it was fine. But you would never, ever, ever try that until you have sanity, and that means you wouldn't be trying that kind of crap until you're into step 10. Mm-hmm. And you would surely ask your sponsor and get things clarified. You wouldn't try anything. You know, you know you're crazy, so you better talk to somebody that's, that's much saner than you about you, <laughs> about trying to do things that would, would put you in high risk. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ruth. You answered my question. I'm looking forward to being recovered. Thank you. Thank you, Rita. This is Amy, and I just wanted to thank you again. And, uh, yes, you're really answering my questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Anyone else this morning, star one to unmute? Hi, this is Yvette from New Jersey. Um, also want to thank you for your share. And 
it was um, particularly interesting when you talked about your neighbor. Um, I actually have um, a f- two foods that I'll go into anaphylactic shock and never really put the allergy of the body um, attached to other foods that I've eaten um, that basically are the triggers to continue to do it. So I just want to thank you for that particular example because um, it really did hit hard. Um, Pass. All right, thanks. Thank you, Yvette. Anyone else? Hi, my name is Chava. Can I share? You may ask a question regarding what was uh, presented right. today. Yes. I just, okay, I just wanted to bring um, a point. Um, I'm just <clears throat> done with my... Um, Step 10, I just completed step 10, and I really see a root description um, describing my um, feelings to the T, my uh, feelings and my obsession, uh, that uh, really it's true. I don't even think that uh, this food belongs or has anything to do with me anymore, even if I go to any affairs, um, smorgasbord or um, buffet or anything like that. It just does not talk to me anymore. And I'm uh, grateful for that. So thanks. Thank you. Um, I, I will say that uh, my experience is I, I really don't go to smorgasbords or buffets. I, I just don't. Even today, at 26 years abstinence, um, it doesn't interest me at all. I don't find the food the best tasting food there. It's usually under hot lights. And, um, you know, I, I, it's just, I guess I could, but it, it just, it's not something I, today it's just, I don't, there's no need to go there. After all the experiences I had there back when I was eating compulsively, because that's where I would always go, you know. Um, so, again, we have to be careful that says, well, I can do what I couldn't do before. If it's the disease talking, then it's trying to get us in high-risk situations, which are said, versus um, it's not an issue, um, the whole thing, and it doesn't interest me. And if I'm there for a genuine reason, maybe I have a, a, a group that I have to go for, and I, they, it meets there once a month, and it's actually a business requirement that I go, and then I'm there. I mean, obviously, you know, I would be there, but uh, I don't sort it out. You know, um, you know, sex addicts don't go down to the red light district, even though they could, um, and I don't go to more sports, even though I could. So we have to be careful um, what's behind it, again, because – it's unconscious most of it, and we have to be talking to somebody to make sure it's not an attempt to get us back close again. So I would just be careful of that and check that out with somebody, even if you're not thinking about it. Thank you, Ruth. Anyone else questions this morning? Star one to unmute. Hello. I have a... I have Hi, I'm Sharona, I'm a compulsive overeater from Israel, and I would like to ask Ruth a few questions about the things that she said, and I want to thank her for her service. Um, you said that the first, at, at, at the beginning that some people confuse more about alcoholism as step one, but it is step two. Can you please... Um, Clarify on that because when I read step three, um, part, um, chapter three, 
I, I also get confused between the step one and the step two. And the other question that you said that the illness, uh, is the unconscious part of the illness is uh, getting us uh, to a high-risk situ situation. And I would like to know how you can recognize how you could recognize it that the illness is manipulating you to do something like going to the gas station with the with the restaurant that you shouldn't go at and you know go and have a pee to go to the bathroom and excuse me go to the bathroom and you know maybe you can and this is a high risk risk situation so how you can recognize the high risk situation and and how you can recognize the the manipulation of the disease and with that, I pass. Okay. Now, on the second question, the answer probably is you won't know. Um, if you're somebody fairly new, and that doesn't mean new attending meetings, because you could be attending mm -hmm. meetings for decades and still eat compulsively. Um, I mean, really, now you're taking step one. Actually, two. Yeah, two. So you probably won't know. That's the that's the problem. The disease is not going, you know, I joke, it never goes open up the front door and just pounces right on and says, here I am, Ruth. No, it's, it uh -huh. takes the back door and opens up very quietly, and it sneaks on in the house, and I don't even know it's in there. Uh, my uh -huh. disease never comes blaring at me. Uh, my, my disease will always continue to be more manipulative, more cutting, powerful, baffling. It's going to continue to do more of that as time goes on. So you probably won't know. That's why you need somebody that's recovered that, as you say, um, you talk to them about what's happening. You First you pray to God and draw close to God. So what happens is as you get close to God, sometimes you'll feel a little uncomfortable, uh, not real. Uh, somehow something maybe seems to be bothering. You don't even know why, but something seems to be not quite right. You want to, hey, I don't know. I, I'm feeling, uh, I'm not sure, or, you know, I get this gut feeling that, which is God, we just don't call it God. I get a gut feeling, I don't know why I, sh I shouldn't go to that place. And you know, the sponsor doesn't even know there's a restaurant attached. So you start talking. You have to just, as best you can, be open and honest to a sponsor and talk about things you're doing and how you're just not feeling that sense of, uh, um, uh, you're just not feeling as connected as you were and what is really going on. And lo and behold, the recovered person then will be able to point it out to you. And then you're like, oh, I didn't know. So for you to know it on your own is probably not going to happen because it's greater than you. And as soon as you figure out anything, it mutates into a new expression. So you never can keep up with it. So let's just acknowledge that it's going to always be smarter than we are. And we always need assistance from others. And it doesn't even matter how long we've been abstinent. We can get caught doing something really stupid and after all these years. And somebody points it out to us. Uh, we're not immune to, you know, getting back into the disease in these more subtle ways. So uh, the answer is that you probably won't know. You'll probably have to be talking to others that do know. Um, they've seen it. They've understood it. They've done it or others have done it. Uh, that's what I find. Uh, early on, I had no idea how I was setting myself up for failure repeatedly um, when I thought I was doing well. Because, you see, I thought I was doing well, and I didn't have God. Or God, the connection with God was so poor that I wasn't really getting. Even if God would have to have a magnaphone, it's screaming into directly in my ear for me to hear God. That's that's where I was at. I barely had any connection through my fault, not through God's. So um, I need a lot of help uh, to get me uh, to support me 
to get me so I can get close to God and really get that gut feeling. Now today, um, yeah, I, I have a, that gut, the gut's there. God's there and God's speaking to me. Sometimes it'll be funny. God will, I had this one time God said something. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And so he said it a second time. I go, okay, I, you got my attention. You just told me it's two times in a row. I heard you the second time. You know, I'm laughing with God. I don't know why God has a tech problems today. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Guess to develop patience, but it's life. There's nothing I can do about that. So uh, God will, I can get a sense of, of God saying something, but I sure would never have said that in my first five, maybe even ten years uh, of being absent. It took a long time to have a real comfortability. And even then, I still check it out because I want to make sure it's just not me. So the chance that you're going to have God directly speaking to you is not real likely. Um, so you better get somebody else that maybe has gotten there so they can help you. As far as the um, the first point you made, it's really, I, I don't really think it matters that much. I, I have people with great uh, programs that put this chapter as really part of step one. That's fine. I was taught to put it as step two, and that's fine. I, I don't really think it really matters. Uh, it really doesn't matter. Um, I take it just as Joe and Charlie taught it. Um, I just kind of go with them because uh, they're the ones that got me uh, abstinent, and uh, so I honor them. And for them, they never would go, they wouldn't say that the, ch- the book is written for you about step one in, Bill, in Dr. Sveen and Bill's story, then there's a solution, which is step two, and then more about alcoholism, which is about step one, and then we agnostics, which is about step two. They just didn't find that made sense. For them, the book always moved from step one, then the next piece would be step two, and the next piece would be three and four and, and there on. They never would say they would be looping back to a previous step. They just, that's not the way they looked at it. And so for me, I'm the same way, though I understand it really is relative to the mental obsession, which is the description of what is the problem. So I'm completely comfortable with somebody that sees it as step one, and that's fine, and that makes sense to them, and I understand why it makes sense to them, and I wouldn't ask them to change. Um, I just see it as the focus of uh, being restored to sanity in this chapter. It's, it's just, though it mentions step one in mental session, it's really talking about insanity, which is more than the words mental obsession. It's uh, really hammering in that I'm insane and, need, and I need to be returned to sanity, and so I understand it is vital for me to do this so that I can take step two. But it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. I'm fine with both ways. So I'll pass. Thank, thank you. Sharona for the questions. And Ruth for the response. Anyone else this morning? Star one to unmute. This is Susan. Hi, Susan. Good morning. Susan, we lost you there. Star one to unmute again. Sorry, my phone muted me. Sorry about that. Thank you, Leah, and thank you, Melanie, behind the scenes, and, and of course, Ruth. Um, two things. One is I, I heard you uh, give um, a couple of examples of SUDS, and I wondered if you have any more. I'm sure they vary from individual to individual, which is why you advised us to speak to someone recovered about our individual circumstances. But since it is unconscious and we may not even recognize it to speak of, I was hoping you might give some other quick examples. And the other thing is you shared in your Thanksgiving uh, talk, which I listened to multiple times, about not being worthy of abstinence, not praying for abstinence. I may be misquoting you, by the way. I take responsibility if I am. But I was confused by that. I understand that we learn in the big book not to pray for ourselves, but how to be, a, unless it's useful to others. 
and maybe that was the context in which you meant it, but I was confused by the, the notion of not being worthy of, of abstinence, if, I, if I'm quoting you correctly, and those are my questions. Thanks so much. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, there are many examples with suds. Um, I, I'm just giving you common ones that I hear a lot of, but one would be uh, people, let's say you get off work, it's 5 o'clock, and you're going to go home and eat your meal, and you decide to stop at the grocery store and pick a few things up on the way home. So you are physically hungry. It's time to eat your meal, and you are now putting yourself in the middle of a grocery store, which you've gone in the past and bought um, bench foods out of. That's not a good idea. Go home, eat your meal, shop in the grocery store with a full stomach, you know, after you've eaten a meal. Don't, don't go to a grocery store um, on an empty stomach. When we do that, we're actually trying to set ourselves up. Um, and again, that's, we're not even thinking of eating compulsively, but there we are. Um, the other thing, just in a grocery store, you know, I, I don't have pets, so I don't go down the aisle that has pet food. I don't need to go down that aisle. I don't have pets. If you go in that grocery store, even on a full stomach, and you find yourself going down the aisle that has nothing in it but bench foods, why in the world are you there? What are you doing walking down that aisle? I guess if it's a strange grocery store, you don't know what things are, but you say it's a grocery store you shop at. You know what's down each aisle. You have no business walking down an aisle that serves no purpose. If you do that, then that's a seemingly unimportant decision. You're actually walking by something so you can look at it, so you can have the saliva dripping out of the side of your mouth, so you can then think about it, which then if you do that enough times, then you will eventually go think about actually wanting to eat it. I mean, those are common, common examples. And you know, we can go on and on about those. But, again, working with your sponsor, um, there will, it will be apparent as you are honest with her. There's the key, honest. <laughs> if you're not honest, who cares? She won't be able to help you. But if you're honest with her, um, then she can help you move back from the moment of the thought of eating to the actual action. What, what I'll do with somebody, um, so I'll say, okay, they, let's say they have the example, uh, you know, that uh, let's say the grocery store and so we'll move back from them actually seeing the object thinking of wanting to eat it their thoughts are increasing and I always go over you know frequency duration intensity are the key frequency duration intensity if your thoughts about food are increasing in intensity they're stronger when they happen frequency they're happening more often duration they last longer when they happen then there's something wrong they should not be the same or increasing if they are increasing or not decreasing, then you are in deep doo-doo, and you need, we need to do, it doesn't mean you throw everything out, but something needs to be changing. So periodically I ask that question, um, not so much that they keep tabs on it, that's not really, you know, I'll just ask them every once in a while if they don't bring it up, and then they'll think and say, well, actually it is kind of slowly, I mean, not on a given day, because on a given day you could have a real stress, and off you go and you, we're going to have to do something. It may be going to another meeting a week. It may be doing a little more step. Whatever it is, we're going to have to escalate that which we need to do to get closer to God because you're going backwards. And then in that discussion, I want them to say, okay, when you're having these, uh, you're having these thoughts more often, can you tell me when they're happening? And um, lo and behold, they're managing to stop at the grocery store on the way home from work maybe three times a week to pick up just a couple items instead of making one trip once a week to buy what they need for that week. 
oh, okay, now let's look what's happening. And then we, then I, then we begin to start putting the pieces together, and then we see why, that how the disease has come in with you not knowing it. And so I go backwards from the moment of the thought to each action that preceded that thought, the action maybe that got them to that thought, the thought that got them to do the action that got them to that thought. So I will take them backwards as far back as we can go to the progression it took to get back in the food. Um, and so uh, that's why I'm saying a sponsor that's recovered needs to take you through that process because they'll know the questions asked. Since it's unconscious mostly, you're not going to know. Now, again, all this has to be prefaced with this is not for you to control your eating. You've missed the boat. You're, you're, you're not going to get anywhere. It's for you to better understand how completely, utterly hopeless you are left on your own devices, that this is something beyond you, and no matter what you can do, self-knowledge will never get the solution. So you understand it makes you more humble, and not more trying, if you're trying to control, you're less humble. If you see how this, oh, my God, I didn't know, thank you. My God, the disease is more than I can handle. And you begin to even become more humble and draw even closer to God. That's the progression, hopefully, that happens with your sponsor. Um, so, and then as far as the second question, um, what I'm saying is that I'm, I'm not even worthy. I'm not even worthy of this absence as far as I didn't, you know, here I am, this hopeless glutton um, that is trashing myself and my health, my emotional state's bad, my thought process is bad, all my relations are flawed, my money's going, to, going for the food. I'm this complete mess. And in spite of that, of the horrendous harm I did myself and others, God came to me through the 12 steps and saved my life. I, I wasn't worthy of receiving this gift based on how I lived my life when the gift was given to me. To pick me up from the gutter of life and, and, and bring me to where I am today, I did not do anything in any way that deserved this kind of a gift, and yet it was given to me just the same. Some, what I learned, and this was... You know, I heard this tape from this old-timer in AA, and he said something, and then it occurred to me I had done that, and I hadn't put it in words. And what he said was that he had, he, he, the, he, took, step, he took step one. He had a complete admission that he was an alcoholic. Before even his feet hit the floor out of the bed, he was laying there drunk, coming out of a blackout that he'd been in for some weeks, and realized at that moment, and then went to an AA meeting. So he had already taken step one before he showed up at AA later that day. And he never prayed to God to be abstinent, for he was not worthy of, of asking for it. But what he did do is every day he woke up and thanked God for giving him the gift regardless. And I realize that's my story. I don't pray to God to be abstinent, for I'm not worthy of, I'm not worthy, please give it to me. Who am I to ask God for that which I was so completely unworthy of, of ever receiving based on my, my life? And I know that God loves me so much that I don't have to ask for it. God will give it to me and gives it to all of us every day. Everybody on the line right now, God is giving you abstinence. You don't even need to ask for it. God comes and gives it to you continuously in love. There is no conditions imposed on God. You don't even have to ask for it. God doesn't even impose that condition. God loves us so unconditionally that God gives it to us no matter 
what we've done and what we've thought and, and, and how we live our lives. It's always given to us. We have it. All we have to do is accept it. The problem isn't that we're not asking for it the right way to get what we want, which is to be abstinent. The problem is we don't surrender because the gift is always there and has always been there and will always be there if we surrender 100% to God. God has it and just is there standing, holding it out to us when we open our eyes every morning. It's always there. And can we know that if we just say, I don't, I'm not worthy based on how I've lived my life, and yet you give it to me again. Thank you. And our tears fall in our eyes, and, and we feel gratitude for that. And that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not worthy of this great gift, and yet God loves me so much. God gives it with no conditions. It's unconditional love. Abstinence is unconditional love in a, in a concrete form given to me every day by God. I hope that clarifies it. Thank you, Susan, for the question, Ruth, for the response. Anyone else this morning with a question? We studied Chapter 3, more about alcoholism. This is our one turn. Go ahead. Any more questions this morning? I would like to ask another question. This is Sharona from Israel. Hello? Please go ahead. Yes, and then mute yourself, please. Thank you. Okay. Um, Ruth, you speak uh, a lot of the connection with God and I, I'm still at the very beginning, and I would like to ask, how can, I'm, I'm, how can I do um, active actions that can make my my connection with God better or more closer, as you uh, define it? And uh, thank you. With that, I pass. Um, well, I think the first thing for me, I had to realize how I wasn't connected with God, how I completely depended upon my self-sufficiency to get through life, self-will, how that way of the core of me was flawed. Um, To pray to God with enough depth um, that I needed to pray for, I had to see how what I did do didn't work so I could let it go. If I pray to God in order to become more self-sufficient and able to deal with life on, as I felt I needed to deal with it on the way I thought it needed to occur, and I simply tried to draw closer to God to get that accomplished because then God and I were on the same side, it still was me conditionally trying to impose my will uh, to have control of life based as I could see God is helping me get what I want. And, for example, does that, it sounds not noble. I'll pray to God to be abstinent. Yes, I want to be abstinent, and clearly I need to be abstinent, but I'm praying to God to give me something instead of surrendering to God. And if I truly surrender to God, 
I mean, really surrender as the big book is talking about in step one. I don't ask God to be abstinent. I'm so caught up in the surrender. I don't even know what it is. I don't even put a label on that experience. But I so turn to God that God can give me whatever God wants. And if God doesn't want me to ever be abstinent for the rest of my life, then that's okay. I mean, when I surrendered, I didn't ask to be abstinent. I didn't ask anything. I just simply said, I, you know, basically screwed it up, do whatever in the hell you want with me now. Just do what you want. And there was no asking of anything of God. And if that meant on that day that I would never be absent for the rest of my life, that was okay. If it meant I was to be absent, that was okay. If it was anything, it was okay. I asked nothing. I expected nothing. I simply was willing to have God do whatever God wanted. No conditions on my part. I simply let go of conditions, even asking to be abstinent. That wasn't in my mind because it was just surrender. For me to draw closer to God, to say, let me think of an act, let me do that act so that I can get that result. The finest moments of my life doesn't go through that channel, like think, act, get results. It is that I simply stop the thoughts of what I want and try to move closer to God. I, you know, I, I learned, it took a long time to learn, it wasn't about me asking God to help me be whatever it is, after something else. I now pray, I pray, God, what can I do to help you? My prayer today is I just ask God, what do you want me to do to help you? I, I, I'm here Give me the marching orders. Just tell me what I, I want you want me to do. I know I'm not going to be perfect. I'll do unto the best of my ability today. But today I'm here on my knees asking, what do you want of me today? That's a different prayer than getting down on my knees asking God to be abstinent. It's, a, it's really vastly different. It sounds somewhat the same, but it's not. I don't ask God. Of, of, I don't ask God for anything. Just whatever your will is, I will be done. I don't ask God, I simply ask God what God wants me to do and try as best I can to do it. But it took me years in program to get there, I'm, I, not at the beginning. I mean, I, don't, I can't even tell you how many years until I finally understood that I was being selfish and even asking to be abstinent. That was still selfish because I wanted it and I wanted it badly. It didn't work. It wasn't until November 15, 1986, and on that day was the first day ever. I'd been programmed four years, but that was the first day I didn't ask God to be abstinent. I didn't ask anything that day. I didn't even put a label on what I was doing because I was so in the experience that there were no words to describe it until many months later, and it occurred to me that you must have surrendered that day because you haven't, you know, look what's happened since then. Um, wherever we do, I mean, if we read Bill's story, uh, clearly he just said, he just basically surrendered everything to God because his story is he didn't think of drinking again. He had many character defects, and he spent his whole life working on them, but he didn't think to drink again from that day forth in December of 1934 until his death in January of 71. So obviously it must have been surrender. How do we know? Here's, a, here's, like a, here's an acid test that we'll know. How do we know we're um, doing God's will? Well, here's just the acid test. You don't care about outcome. If you don't care about outcome, then you're trying to do God's will. 
Because if, to the extent you care about the outcome from your actions, then you're wanting a certain result, and then it's about you. Now, that's a pretty drastic thing. So I gave the example of abstinence. You don't care about outcome. If you're not even abstinent for the rest of your life, fine. You do what you want with me, God. I'm, I'm not, I don't even care about the outcome. Um, imagine yourself, uh, there you are marrying your sweetie, and there you so love God, and you so put God first, even above your marriage, and this person standing next to you on your day of marriage, that you are willing for God to do whatever God wants with that marriage. Even if your spouse dies that next day, you will go through great pain, but you will trust God. If you don't care about the outcome, you put God and let God decide everything, then you're willing to let God do whatever God wants to do. Losing a child, a, a child dying, some, but you know, I'm willing to do whatever you want and, and I don't care about outcome. That doesn't mean you don't love your child. It means that you love God so much that you're so willing to have God give you directions and you're going to follow them. It will be that you will somehow, in that moment of great pain, trust, even though you don't understand it, but you trust God, that you're willing to let even that happen. You are willing to let God just run the show. But, it, it, again, that takes a long time, um, and I'm just giving you something that has taken me now, you know, many, many years to learn. With that, I pass. Thank you very much, Ruth. Any other questions this morning? Star one to unmute. Hi, this is Bonnie. Could I ask a question? Yes. Okay, this is about the appendix, the spiritual experience. Would that be appropriate to ask about that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Part of step two. Uh, it's on page uh, 569 of the book. And it's towards the bottom, and it says he finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. And then it skips a, a sentence and says, with few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves. I just would uh, would like to hear more about that, if you don't mind. Um, yeah, this um, this page here, it, it, just a, uh, inter interesting. When they wrote the first printing of the first edition of the Big Book, this 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 didn't exist in it. This thing called spiritual experience, and so what happened was. Um, that in this original group of 100 people, there was a belief that if it wasn't done Bill's way, it must not be the right way, that somehow this, this unbelievable experience that Bill had in the hospital was so, um, it was just so unbelievable, so uh, just beautiful experience that they kind of wanted Bill's way. And somehow if they didn't get it Bill's way, they wanted, they somehow thought maybe something was wrong. But then they found, when they really honestly looked at themselves, that um, that really wasn't the story. And what happens at that point, the paragraph above, um, that the God consciousness followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook, that was about 10%. So we'll say about 10 of those people, Bill and maybe another nine people approximately, had that experience. 
of encountering God. It was a spiritual experience. In one moment in time, boom, everything that had before that moment in time was one way, and everything else in your life was something vastly different. It was a huge, big moment. Then in the other 90% had something a, a different. It was the same result, but the path was taken, but the end result became the same. And that is what was called the educational variety because they developed slowly over a period of time what Bill had in one moment in time. Um, and so this educational variety is the paragraph you're talking about. So the 90%, and clearly I'm in the 90%. I came in program in 82. I got absent in 86. Obviously, I was in the educational variety. I didn't just walk in the OA's door and then was absent from that day forth um, or just shortly thereafter. Um, so I was the one that stumbled along and eventually, through thank God, through Joe and Charlie, got it. I found out what the big book was about. The educational variety. So slowly over time, you, had, you have happening in you what Bill had happening in that hospital room in December of 1934. You have it over years. He had it in one single moment of maybe X minutes. But in that state, you don't, you're timeless and you're spaceless. You lose track of time. Time ceases to exist because you're in a different dimension. You're not in this dimension of this world where there is time. Um, but in this one, the educational variety, it is. Like you have some time that passes. So quite often friends of you are aware of the difference long before you are aware of the difference within you. And then you finally realize you know, time has gone on and you slowly have developed a better relationship with God, some setbacks along the way, some detours taken, I'm sure, but slowly you're developing this relation with God and people around you can tell it. Um, they can say they can say things to you, man, you've changed. And it's not I don't mean just your weight loss or that you're absent. There's something else. There's a glow in your eyes or there there's a, a way you're I just don't I can't even put it in words, but I can see it in you and you're like, Well, I don't know. And then sudden, somehow you realize, you finally realize that something has happened and you've had a profound alteration in your action to life. Just like Bill, he did it in one moment in time, but now you've also come to have a profound relationship in life. And it, it didn't happen by you alone. Somehow something happened. And you really can't even put it in words because it's greater than words. Um, and what's happened is... Yes, you have changed. So when we go back to look at what is the solution, if we go to page 25 and then we go and read again Dr. Carl Jung's words on page 27, it's that is what it's talking about. Right there on those pages is what this is about. So what they ended up doing to clarify this so that people could not get confused, they actually, uh, if you look at... Um, this 12, the 12th step very brilliantly Bill wanted to write spiritual experience because he's writing from his point of view but having had a spiritual awakening they, they really had to go from experience to awakening so if you want to put it this way experience is Bill's one moment in time awakening is a lot of itty bitty small experiences that, come, that the result of combining those through years ends up being a spiritual experience, but it's little bitty ones that get you to be awakened. So the difference between those two things, you've had, if, if you're me, you've had a spiritual awakening through itty bitty tiny little spiritual experiences that add up to Bill's experience in the hospital. But I had thousands of these little ones to get to the one that would be equal to Bill's one. 
So that's the profound alteration. It came through these little bitty, and I could give you many. This one, this one, and and it's some, and a lot of it at the beginning it happened, and I didn't give God credit. I said, "Well, how did that happen? I don't know. I'm puzzled." And somebody go, "Well, that was God." Oh, really? I mean, I, I was clueless. So a lot of it, you know, God didn't even get credit by me. Um, and even today, I might go, "Well, what, what was that?" Oh, yeah, that was God. Because if you open your mouth and you say something better than you were thinking, you didn't say it. If you, you know, if you do something that's better than you were planning on doing, then you didn't do it. God did it because it was better than anything you thought of or did. So it had to be God. So it'll be actions done or thoughts and all that. So this profound alteration is what they're talking about. So uh, that's why step 12 says having had a spiritual awakening because it encompasses Bill's experience of the 10% of a spiritual experience one-time moment and it encompasses the other 90% with the little bitty moments that add up to the same result. So a spiritual awakening means both of those things. Okay, And so that's what this page I find is talking about. If you go back and historically study why this page came in the book, that's why it was put there. For you to understand if you're in the 90%, you haven't failed. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing. You're doing great. You just happen to be in the 90% of what William James calls educational variety. And what he's talking about is the book, that moment in time in the hospital, the very next day, uh, Eddie Thatcher shows up and has a book in hand called The Varieties of Religious Experience written by William James. And this guy was a big philosopher back then. It was not light reading. Bill did not study philosophy. He did not have a, uh, a college degree in philosophy. It, it is, is something where you, even philosophers have to read it very carefully. And Bill, still in that altered state from the day, day before, read that whole book cover to cover in 24 hours. Before he went to bed that day, he had read that whole book. And varieties of religious experience today we would call varieties of a spiritual experience. But back 100 years ago, they didn't use the term spiritual in their book. But what William James was saying, there are a multitude of ways to have this, this relationship with God. And it could be Bill's way, and it could be many other ways, and he described many of these ways. And, one, and when he's mentioning educational variety in that book, he's referring to this profound alteration that occurs through time in many little experiences that eventually gets it, and, and you're the last one to know. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you, Ruth, very much. Any other questions this morning? Star one to unmute. I'm Sharona from Israel. I would like to ask Ruth another question. Okay. Um, at, Bill, <clears throat> at Bill's story, um, the friend, uh, I don't know who, who exactly, but uh, there, is, there is a description of uh, the friend who comes to him, and he asks, and he talks about God, about God and the God connection, and and Bill is quite agnostic, and he asks, and he tells him to invent his God, and I would like to ask you, Ruth, uh, how did you invent your own God, if you may, if you can, if you could have done that? So how how a person can invent his own God and believe in it? And with that, I pass. Um, yeah, you're talking about the, that was Ebby Thatcher that came to visit Bill in late November of 1934. Um, farm your own concept of God. Um, for me, it starts with knowing that what I have doesn't work and I'm willing to let it completely go. So I can have where I'm at and try to farm a concept of God in order for that concept to get me what I want. So... 
let's say life is a mess, I'm eating compulsively, I can't stop, let me form a concept and that will surely get me through this and I'll eventually, you know, I'll be abstinent. But in that whole process, I'm still playing God, am I not? For if I form a concept with God in order to now have what I want, I am not surrendering as I have to as part of step one. So I've actually failed because I'm trying to still manipulate and control the situation. What's more wonderful than forming a concept with God and getting close to God? But if I'm doing it with the intent to still get an outcome, whatever that outcome I believe is right, then that's not going to work. And that can be confusing for people because it sounds like it's so noble to do. It just didn't work for me. So we go back again to step one because this is the foundation in which the house is built on this concrete slab. It's not built on sand. And this concrete slab of this house, when you sure can't live on a slab, but you've got to have that concrete solid foundation to build the house on top of it. And that concrete slab is this surrender that whatever I thought and believed isn't working, I have to just let it go and let whatever takes its place be okay with me. And so when I surrendered, it was letting go of, which is the first step, versus trying to form a concept to get something, it's still more of the same. It's still self-will run riot. Obviously, self-will run riot, you go and, I don't know, you murder somebody. That's self-will run riot. You go and take the life of another. But it's also self-will run riot if you try to form a concept of God in order to get what you now want by having that concept. That's not drawing closer to God. That's still trying to use God to get. And so it's still self-will and riot. Um, so the first thing has to be surrender, as we need to do it as part of step one. Once I let go of and said, God, you can do whatever you want, I, was, I had no concept of God at that point. In effect, I mean, I had some up to then, but at that point, I was not defining God because the actual defining God limited God by my attempt to define it. My moment in time was letting whatever was out there, um, God, it could be put another name, but whatever it was, do whatever you want with me. I'm not asking anything of you anymore. I'm not trying to get anything. I'm not trying to define you. You're in charge now. Do whatever you want with me. And so if I pray uh, to find out what God wants me to do today and try to do it to the best of my ability, instead of praying today for abstinence or that my children have good health or whatever. It could be many noble things, but I don't get to do that. I'm, I'm not worthy of doing that. I'm only expected for me today to ask God what God wants and not even care about the outcome, which is hard. It's hard because I do want to care about the outcome, and I understand that's myself will rising up again, that to let go of even the outcome of my work. Whatever God gives me to do today, I am to do it to the best of my ability. The results from that is none of my business. I don't care about those results, and it's fine whatever it is. Hard to do. It's not easy. Um, but to even let all that go is uh, – but it's a process. So to start off with, we just do step one. You want to know how to develop a good relationship with God? Follow the exact directions of this book do exactly what these 100 reco recovered people told you to do, and it will happen automatically because it happened automatically for them. You don't have to worry about what you need to do to get something. 
you need to only do the step work and it happens directly as a result of doing what they told you to do. That's all. It's not going to be more complicated. We don't have to try to figure this all out. We just do what the book says. We get what the book promises, and it all happens. At least that's my experience, so I'll pass. Thank you, Ruth. And on that message of hope, we want to thank you this morning for all your time and your perseverance through the technical challenges and all your efforts in teaching Chapter 3, More About Alcoholism. I will now close the meeting, A Vision for You, in the way that we always close our meetings, and that's from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.